This is the Banana Data Podcast, a podcast hosted by Data IQ. I'm Trevaney. And I'm Chris. And together, we'll discuss the good, the great, and the ugly of AI. For our season four kickoff, we're looking at a number of AI use cases and asking about their gray areas. What happens if something is valuable but crosses the ethical lines? But where are those ethical lines? Welcome back to season four of the Banana Data Podcast. I'm Trevaney, and with me is a new host, Chris. Welcome, Chris, to the show, and please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Trevaney. So excited to be here and joining you on the season four of the Banana Data Podcast. Chris here, also go by CPM, data scientist at Data IQ. I've had some experience both in industry and academia teaching statistics and data science, and I'm really excited to get started talking about some of these topics here on the podcast. Fantastic. I forgot all of my stats, so you'll have to reteach them to me. On <laughs> Don't worry, you're not alone. Podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Question is, did I ever actually learn them to begin with? <laughs> well, great. So it's really good to have you here. I'm really excited. And I think we're going to try a slightly different approach for season four. You know, it's really easy to get lost in the weeds of different AI algorithms and different methods and data and all of these questions. And I think it's important for us to be able to scale back and maybe look at a bigger picture. So the overall theme I want to talk about today is ethics of AI, or is it ethical, so to speak? Yeah, and I think this calls upon the idea of this gray area where there might not always be a clear answer. Is it ethical? Yes, no. Well, you know, we might fall into these cases where it can be ethical if you're using it in the right way. But then again, what is the right way? Yeah, and so this is great because my my first area that I wanted to discuss was deep fakes. Now, if you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll know that I hate deep fakes. I just think they're oh just so bad. But I recently read an article titled Why Deep Fakes Are a Net Positive for Humanity. Oh gosh. So basically <laughs> going against all of that you believe in. Yeah, basically. I was not happy when I read that. And in the article, the author's making this point that there are bad uses of, of deep fakes, right? You know, between political and personal, all these different things that can happen. But there are also a lot of really cool applications. For example, Disney is able to use deep fakes and GANs to generate new content, new kinds of images and sounds that have never been seen or heard before. Or, you know, in a more business application, you can use GANs to actually synthesize data for your business where you don't have the right amount of data so you can synthesize data that's pretty close to real and actually train useful algorithms on it. So yes, there are some positive applications of this stuff. Does that then outweigh all the negatives? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the article discussed bringing art and history to life. So for example, putting to speech John F. Kennedy's words that he didn't get to say the day he was assassinated. And they were already written, so they were already his thoughts, but we never heard them spoken by him. Or creating data for detecting tumors when these tumors are very rare. So that's all positive and well and good. And I think everybody or many people will agree that that's a positive use of this deep fake algorithm. But there's this negative side of things that can get very murky. And the article makes this point about how we're very accustomed to delineating between reliable sources that are text-based currently. 
based upon where they're coming from. And now we have to educate ourselves in a way to do the same thing for video content. So the onus is being placed, it seems in this article, on us to be able to parse that out. And I don't know, that left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I think you're kind of hitting why I don't like deep fakes, right? Because Mm -hmm. the algorithm is really good at doing what it does. And you Mm -hmm. sometimes can't tell, oh, that's a faked video of so-and-so or a faked audio file. I think that's where the, the concern is for me is that we're creating new and new methods out there in the world. But the average consumer of these, of the products coming out of these methods isn't even aware that such methods exist or if they do exist, how they would go about trying to understand what it is, is good for synthesizing data. But there is no way to understand if something's been synthesized or not beyond, you know, running it through maybe another algorithm or deeply inspecting whatever content it is. But I think at the end of the day, what really bothers me about this article, besides the the whole premise, is, is that term net positive. You know, deep fakes are a net positive, meaning that all of the good outweighs all of the bad. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think we can say if it's outweighing or not. Just because, like, one, we don't even know all of the potential applications on both sides. And two, I mean, how do we really decide what is a net positive for society or humanity? Yeah. How are we quantifying what is good and bad? This is all qualitative. And one bad thing that we've never thought about before could really be so detrimental that it is not a net positive. So I agree with you on that. It's That, that really does kind of leave me wondering, are we really thinking about all of the ways in which this could be used for bad? It's a tool that we're giving all of our data scientists and they decide whether or not they're going to use it for good or evil. Right. And I think, I, I, I do want to be fair. I, I, I find that there are a lot of interesting potential applications that are positive between, like we talked about, and the ability to generate new ideas or recreate history. That's great for humanity in a way that's not like business money power kind of stuff, right? It's just like, it's nice. It's cool. It's like having cat videos on your iPhone. (laughs) (laughs) Never enough of those. Never enough of those, I have to say. But what are the trade-offs that we're accepting by saying, I want more cat videos at the risk of misinformation or other kinds of things that could that could go wrong. So that actually brings up another point. I, I wanted to talk about um, this concept about restricted mode on YouTube. And it came into vogue a couple of years ago, actually, about what is suitable content for advertisers on this platform. So YouTube is a democratized platform. Anybody can upload videos, share videos, and a lot of people actually make money off of these videos by, you know, showing ads provided by Google. And a few years ago, this restricted mode came out that filtered videos that had sensitive content. But it wasn't exactly clear as to how this content was being filtered, what was being deemed sensitive. And one of the particular items that you know, users started realizing was being filtered out was information that had to do with the LGBT community. And a lot of users were noticing that some of this content was really just talking about it and informational. And YouTube claimed that, you know, sensitive content either had to do with age restrictions or sexually explicit discussions and so on and so forth. But 
According to this official description, the company, you know, noted that the feature isn't 100% accurate and relies on community flagging and age restrictions and quote unquote other signals. So this sparked a debate as to whether or not this is ethical. Right. Well, and especially because the filtering is what's affecting the ad revenue for the content creator, right? If you're flagged as sensitive, then you're not able to show certain ads. Is that right? It's more so that they just won't show ads. So the the creator won't be making money off the videos. So it's actually preventing people to, yeah. You know, people who are using the platform as income generation can't now because of this filtering or they couldn't previously because of this filtering. Yeah, and it takes a lot of time and effort to create these videos. Some people have very sophisticated setups with editing and so on and so forth. And they find out once they upload their videos, it's demonetized, meaning that all of that work went to nothing in terms of making them money. Right. So it can really have effects on people's well-being if they're relying on this income line and majority of their videos or even a portion of their videos are no longer helping them out. Right. So let's go back to something you said that Google slash YouTube claims that the algorithm that decides this is based on community feedback plus, you know, key terms and then, quote, other signals. And, you know, I'm really curious about this, right? I think the ethical part of this is who should decide in a society now what is and isn't okay, especially as viewpoints change, the world changes, technology brings more and more together. I think this question emerges of, does the platform have a responsibility to manage the content that it's giving out to users, even if it didn't create the content itself? Or do you rely on a community that could be inadvertently hurting minority groups or hurting the underrepresented, if you will? Yeah. I mean, community flagging, I think there's an assumption here that, you know, if a majority flags a video or a decent portion of the population of YouTube users flag a video, it may be restricted. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it should be restricted. I mean, the majority is not always right. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're getting at here is that the majority can outshine the minority just by virtue of numbers and not necessarily the content that's actually inside of the videos. Right. And if you're relying on pure numbers or pure sort of collaborative flagging methods, then what you're doing is creating an entry point for bad faith actors to take over the system because there really might only be a hundred people who care about whether or not something's flagged as sensitive. But of those, two of them might be really good at coding who can code up 35,000 bots to ping and say, this is, this is bad. Have it filtered out or whatever. I hope they use their powers for good instead of evil, but well, you know, we can't rely on that. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that, I think that's what's like, this tension, because the whole point of new technology and all these great algorithms and all this cool AI that we can do is the possibilities are endless. But then therein lies the rub. The possibilities are endless. And we could mm-hmm. create all these spaces for people to get hurt or ways for people to be further marginalized by this AI or by the platform, by the technology. And, you know, who's who's governing that? Who's watching over that? Yeah. And I wonder, like, clearly, I think you and I are are talking about things that that are going wrong here. But I kind of struggle a little bit with figuring out what the alternative would be. 
right? I don't necessarily, I don't think that this is the right way of going about it, but I don't know, like if I were to come back and say, hey, YouTube, you're doing this all wrong, do this instead. I don't know if I have a good answer for what that alternative should be. Well, if you ask me, and again, longtime listeners will will know that this is a oft repeat frame for me, human <laughs> in the loop, you know, yes. like what is the point of an algorithm that is governing human produced content without a human overseeing it? Now, how does that really work, right? Are, are YouTube engineers going to go and watch every single video? Probably not, but maybe there's some kind of auditing mechanism they can build in. Maybe there's a feedback system that can be integrated. So random users are selected after the video's over. Was this content sensitive? Or did you find anything in this content offensive? And hopefully there's enough good faith actors that those bad faith actors will also, their voices will get reduced down. You know, that's a really good idea. I think about serving up random users, a little quiz at the end of the video of whether or not it was sensitive. I think that can help us mine information I think, though, that that doesn't really get us around the problem of the majority overtaking the minority, because statistically that proportion should be approximately the same. But, you know, the other point you made about the YouTube engineers kind of on the back end being human in the loop, I like that idea as well. It just, again, I circle back to this ambiguity of who really decides what falls across the line of good versus bad. Where's that gray area and how do we parse it out? Sure. And you might say that, okay, society and government and all those people are supposed to deem what is right and what is wrong. And sure, we can ask them to do that. But in the U.S. at least, that's not coming anytime soon. Even in Europe and other countries that are now regulating AI, they're not necessarily saying that Facebook and YouTube and whoever must regulate their content in a certain way. Those sorts of regulations are more around data privacy. So who does it fall upon then? Well, ideally... Leaders at these companies have thought about this and have understood the implications. And for them, there's an impetus to clearly define a set of guiding principles for the company. For every single AI project that gets put into production, there should be some guiding values. And whether or not those values then are being upheld is something that, again, has to be audited. So I don't think it's up to you and I or even a larger group of people to sit around and say, is this ethical or what's the gray area? But rather, the leaders themselves need to make a decision and stand by it. But right now, they haven't made any decision. What do we do about that? I think that's where we as data practitioners, data scientists, wherever you might call yourself, that's where we have this ability to work with information, learn from the data that we have access to, wherever we might be, and be able to present that to people to say, look, we might argue that XYZ is fair. Or when we explore more, those pieces of evidence that have been anecdotal are actually really well supported by the data. So what are you going to do about it? And I think that's happened to an extent with the way that grassroots activism occurs now online with campaigns and tweets and all these things. But I encourage folks like you and I who are inside companies to look deeper at the data and try and figure out, is there something we're missing? Are we making like, you know, a terrible judgment call because we haven't actually teased out all the implications? And now it's time for that part of the podcast where we explain complex data science concepts in plain English. 
And for Chris's inaugural in English, please, I'm going to ask, Chris, what is regression to the mean in English? So regression to the mean is this phenomenon that is a little bit paradoxical that occurs in a lot of avenues in regular daily life. So imagine you've got a group of students taking an exam, and a lot of those students get a very high score on the first exam. And they come back the next day, they take another exam. You might think that the high performers on one day will perform really well on the next day, but it turns out more often than not, those students perform worse on the second day. And vice versa, the students who performed low on the first exam come back for the second exam and perform higher. And why is this? Well, the concept here is regression towards the mean or regression more towards an average source. So a score that is you know, towards the middle of the group is more common than the extremes of somebody getting a perfect score or failing. And this occurs a lot in everyday life. So for example, you might put a lot of cameras around an intersection that has a lot of accidents in one month, and the next month you'll see that the accidents reduced. And similarly, you might not invest as much surveillance in an intersection where there's not as much traffic or crashes, and then the next month you'll find out that that rate of crashes increased. And it's all just regression to the mean. Thanks for explaining that in English. So I think this conversation is ambiguous because Ethics can be ambiguous sometimes, and, and that's understandable. But I think that there are also places where it's not ambiguous, and it's very clear what is good and what is bad. And so for me, that example comes from the use of data and AI in predictive policing. So a few months ago, a report came out that the LAPD has been using predictive policing tools to figure out where crimes will occur in the next 12 hours. And I'm sure you're thinking of like Jason Bourne and Minority Report and all those things. It's exactly what was going through my mind. Yeah. Well, it's not quite a, a movie in my mind. I think for me, it's just blatantly problematic because if you're building predictive models on crime in L.A., you can only imagine the socioeconomic makeup of the people and the locations of crimes in the data set. And so if you're asking a algorithm to say, here's a bunch of data on crimes that happened in a really poor area of LA by a minority group of people. Can you tell me where the next crime is going to occur? I'm certain it's going to tell you, oh, that poor area where those minority people live, that's where crime is going to occur. So for me, I just think that that's a clear no, right? That is not ethical. Don't do that. But obviously, there's some folks who think it makes sense and and isn't unethical, which is why it's in, in practice now. And, you know, being completely devil's advocate here, I think the claim is that in general, this type of algorithm or targeting will help reduce crime rate. But unfortunately, that's just regression to the mean. Places where there were very high crime rates before, and now if we're targeting them, well, in general, that's going to lower the crime rate. But what's not really recognized here is that the flip side also occurs. Places where we may be reducing our surveillance, the crime rate's going to increase. And that's, again, just circumstantial. So I, I kind of agree with you here that this, this really feels very unethical because the algorithm, you know, is just dumb. It's just going to take the inputs and predict the output in that methodology. But if we're passing it biased data, then it's going to latch onto those biases. And, and in many cases, that could 
do with socioeconomic status or race or, you know, various different elements that we don't necessarily want to bias against. Right. And so I think we can agree that this is an unethical use of AI. But it does raise this bigger question of what do we do when we want to use AI, but our data is biased or maybe the people building the model are biased or the people who are going to use the model have some sort of history of bias. What do we do in those cases where we're trying to use AI, but there's an underlying unfairness? You know, that's really unfortunate. I think when, when you think about using these algorithms, you get a garbage in, garbage out model. So if you're supplying a model with data that is biased, then you're going to get a model that is biased. So if we're unaware of the biases that are in our data or the collection methodology that we're using, then we don't really have any way to equip ourselves to oversample or correct our model for these issues. And I think the methods and the you know different algorithms, all the different things we can do practically are very important and obviously should be taught more. But even more than that, it seems like there is an onus on people like you and me, people who practice with mm-hmm. practice data science, people who are in this space to become educated, to become aware about those potential areas of bias, unfairness, whatever it might be. It's really easy for people both in and outside of the field of AI to say, magical computer numbers gave me this answer. And so it's correct. And it's true. But in fact, the magical computer answers are so dependent on who's inputting them, who's deciding which ones go in, who's deciding what to do with them. So it's not just give it over to the machine and we're done. We ourselves as have to be vigilant and we have to make sure we're including into the loop the right people, people on the ground who understand the specific context we're working in, who understand the potential implications, people who might be negatively affected by what we're building, but we don't even realize it. So you're telling me that my job won't be replaced by a computer anytime soon? No. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time for a new segment of the Banana Data Podcast called The Pioneers of AI. Today's pioneer is Timnit Gebru, a computer scientist and technical co-lead of the Ethical Artificial Intelligence team at Google. She's most well-known for her work on unmasking the bias built into many facial recognition systems and datasets. For more information, check out the links to her work in the show notes. That's all we've got today in the world of banana data. We'll be back with another podcast in two weeks. But subscribe to the Banana Data newsletter to read these articles and more like them. And we've got links for all the articles we discussed today in the show notes below. Until next time.